Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening. Thank you for being with us on ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Look, I'm sorry I wasn't with you last week, but I had a few medical things to clear up, but all is okay. I should say, though, that since we were last together, Easter has come and gone. And wherever you are listening to me, you would know that storms lashed Eastern Australia on Good Friday and Melbourne. They experienced, or Melbourne did experience, its coldest Easter Sunday in decades. The green fools and the global warming alarmists, I suppose, are running for cover. That said, though, in an increasingly materialistic world, it does no harm to remember the simplicity of the Easter message. Two important events, crucifixion and resurrection, both are relevant today. The crucifixion is at root an expression of the dark mystery of evil, which increasingly today we see all around us, domestically and internationally. If we pause for a moment, we can identify manifestations of evil. The invasion of Ukraine is the modern metaphor, naked butchery carried out by one man against his fellow men and women. If we thought about it, we would ask, and hopefully often, how evil can have such an important place in the world. And this is part of the Easter message, because the resurrection on Easter Sunday is the symbolic triumph of goodness over evil, yet this is an issue with which many people grapple. And rightly they ask, does good really triumph over evil? Because it often seems we're living in an age where greed and injustice, selfishness, violence, dishonesty and envy dominate our lives. We see innocent people ruined through drugs. Other innocent people see their livelihoods destroyed by flood and fire and drought. Others tragically lose their lives on the roads. Innocent people, victims of the wanton irresponsibility of others. Then there are governments who pretend to care, but when you check the record, there is more abandonment than caring. Witness the people suffering from floods and bushfires. People have lost everything. Children have lost their books, their toys, their school. Farmers have lost their stock. Small businesses have lost their businesses. Businesses and people are stripped of their dignity, yet government asks them to fill out endless forms to qualify for a measly couple of thousand dollars. I mustn't be alone in wondering whether people have any comprehension of the Easter message. Politicians blithely want you to believe they care about our children, do they? Politicians wrap it on about the pollution of the environment or saving the planet, but no one talks about the pollution of young people's minds through an education system that teaches climate change as if it were a biblical truth, but doesn't teach geography or history, a system which seeks to radicalise children rather than teach them maths and English, and ignores the ultimate pollution of young people's minds through social media, violent videos and film. Sadly, the contemporary history of human behaviour is too often a case of putting ourselves first and hoping that others can manage as best they can. The biggest call on government is welfare. But increasingly we're happy, it seems, about becoming a dependent society, putting our hand in someone else's pocket. I don't work, but 
I'm entitled to ask you to share with me what you earn from your hard labour. The crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth was a statement of human nature, demonstrating the power which evil has to distort the truth. It's present with us every day. Jesus of Nazareth was, by all accounts, a good man. The crucifixion, which is the religious metaphor of Good Friday, proves that goodness offered him no protection. The Easter message reminds us that there are crucifixions in every generation, but Easter Sunday tells us to remember the resurrection, that amongst the death and the evil of Good Friday is the hope of Easter Sunday. We must try to make hope inform our lives. Later in the program, I will talk to the distinguished British broadcaster, Andrew Neil, the chairman of Press Holdings, whose titles include that splendid magazine, The Spectator. Andrew Neil was previously for 11 years editor of the Sunday Times. He was also the founding chairman in Britain way back in 1998 of Sky TV. I'll talk to him later in the program and he'll share his insights on that issue that you always raise, that people always raise with me, answering a simple question if we can, where is the world heading today? Now for now though, at the risk of being repetitive, in my last broadcast before the New South Wales election, I ended by saying this. On Saturday night, the interest will be twofold. The coalition can't win. Can Labor get to 47? I don't think so, but they'll go close. Well, there you are. I said on Saturday night, the interest will be twofold. The coalition can't win. Can Labor get to 47? I said, I don't think so, but they'll go close. That is exactly what happened. Chris Minns is now Premier with 45 seats, not the 47, which would have given him a majority. He is a minority government. But barely a fortnight since he's been sworn in, the new Premier can see the reason I argued that the Perrottet government was as bad a Liberal government as we have ever seen. Minns has a massive job on his hands. The story at the weekend, for example, of a little 12-year-old girl from Goulburn on a waiting list for spinal surgery. She's been on the list for 706 days. There is no end in sight to her pain. She's one of more than 200 patients at the Children's Hospital at Westmead waiting for essential orthopaedic surgery. Did Perrottet ever talk about any of this when he said, think of our kids? Orthopaedic surgeons are warning that the delays are putting children at serious risk of irreversible damage to limbs and spines. The elective surgery waiting list at Westmead Children's Hospital is a source of shame. At the end of last year, the waiting list, 2,656. What were Perrottet and Keane talking about? Not that. The budgeted cost, oh, they were talking about this, of the main construction work for the Western Harbour Tunnel between Rosehill and North Sydney has ballooned to 6.7 billion, up by 1.4 billion. The first stage of the Parramatta Light Rail has increased by 475 million to 2.9 billion if you're lucky, but kids can't get orthopaedic surgery. And then the Matt Keane Green Dream to inject renewable energy into the grid reveals that distribution is going to be a massive cost. That is, even if you had the wind and solar power, you've got to pay to get it into the grid. Check your electricity bill. Mine has already gone up by 
Then there's the perennial education crisis. You've heard me talk about it over and over again. Public school teachers quitting the job in record numbers. 1,854 permanent teachers walked away from the job in public schools last year. Sarah Mitchell, the outgoing education minister, did not have a clue. And it's not just kids being educated in more than 5,000 demountable classrooms. There are many children without even a teacher in the classroom. My warnings prior to the state election have been proven true. The Minns government has a massive job on its hands. I look tomorrow again at the rental crisis. It is literally frightening. We need a state government that stops trying to get hairs on its chest with so-called big ideas, climate change nonsense, and indeed the voice, which I'll also look at tomorrow. And we need to settle down to deal with the things that voters deal with every day and about which they feel they have no voice paying the bills, electricity, food, tolls, healthcare, education costs. These are state issues. Perrottet thought he was some latter-day statesman and ignored them. It's to be hoped this New South Wales government won't lecture the voter, but instead will listen to the voter. And if they don't, they've got a stormy road ahead. Well, look, in my judgment, the biggest story in the world is the indictment of former President Donald Trump, because this has significant ramifications for the free world. A few things need to be remembered. Victor Davis Hanson is an American historian and political commentator, a contributor to The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal and The National Review, amongst others. He has a PhD from Stanford University. He is Professor Emeritus of Classics at California State University, Fresno. He was awarded the National Humanities Medal in 2007 by the then President George W. Bush. Now, he was once a registered member of the Democratic Party, but he voted for George W. Bush in 2000 and 2004. He is a supporter of Donald Trump. I've got to say that at the outset. He authored a 2019 book called The Case for Trump, and he's defended Trump's insults and incendiary language as, quote, uncouth authenticity. Now, I make that preliminary point because Victor Davis Hanson raises the very valid point that in the light of the indictment of former President Trump, Americans are now trying to figure out what constitutes an indictable offence for current and retired public officials. The Manhattan District Attorney, as you know, Alvin Bragg, ran for office in 2021, promising that if elected, he would go after Trump. But what the historian Victor Davis Hanson cites is what is common knowledge to most. Namely, Trump is currently ahead in the polls for the Republican nomination, and in head-to-head matchups, he outpolls Biden. At least two leaning, Hansen says, leaning federal and state prosecutors previously have passed on the same evidence this fellow Bragg is now using for his indictment. They explained that such a prosecution is unfeasible because of statutes of limitations, because of a state attorney improperly appropriating the role of a federal prosecutor and because non-disclosure agreements are a fact of life and not strictly illegal. He also makes the point that Bragg's chief witness, Michael Cohen, is a felon and confessed liar with a deep personal hatred of Donald Trump, a fact well known to all potential prosecutors. And of course, the indictment follows a long line of historic harassment of Trump, two impeachments of a sitting president, the first FBI armed raid 
of a retired president's home, tax returns, January 6, Russian interference in his victory, etc. But the historian Victor Davis Hanson cites 20 crimes that Trump did not do, which others did, without being arrested. And he cites some, that Trump did not violate federal law, as did Hillary Clinton, by destroying federally subpoenaed emails and devices in order to hide evidence. He says, Trump did not violate federal law, as did Hillary Clinton, by sending classified government communications on her own through an unsecured home server. He says, Trump did not violate federal campaign laws, as did Hillary Clinton, by hiding her payments as legal services to Christopher Steele. Steele, you might remember, is the former British intelligence officer who authored a 35-page series of memos known as the Steele dossier, prepared by a firm hired by Hillary Clinton, associated with the 2016 presidential campaign, all designed to do over Trump. The Steele dossier claimed, based on anonymous sources, that Russia collected a file of compromising information on Donald Trump and that his presidential campaign conspired to cooperate with Russians in their interference in the presidential election. Subsequently, special counsel Robert Mueller did not find any evidence that Trump's campaign team conspired with Russia. Says Victor Davis Hanson, Trump did not, as did Bill Clinton, use a crony to search out a high-paying New York job for Monica Lewinsky in order to influence her testimony before a special counsel, and so it goes on. Peggy Grandy is the former executive assistant to Ronald Reagan. She has written outstandingly on this issue, saying that, quote, whether you love or hate Donald Trump, if you love America, you have to hate what's happening in New York right now. And Peggy joins us. Peggy, thank you for your time. Uh, this is unprecedented. So has the American government been weaponized against its political enemies? Well, Alan, you lay that all out beautifully, and you don't have to be a legal expert here in America to know exactly what's happening. This is not a, a legal case. It's a political witch hunt. It's a political prosecution that actually has turned into a personal persecution of a person that they disagree with. And it's meant to also be a warning shot across the bow for anybody who dares cross this system. You know, the Democrats continue to say that Donald Trump is the greatest threat to democracy, but they are truly the threat to democracy by pulling together a sham case like this, trying to stick it on him. They wanted to keep him from announcing that he was running for president. He's running. And now they're going to do anything they possibly mm. can to keep it, him out of the White House. That's it. I mean, the American it, people see through this and the world sees through it. Isn't this something that Trump has been warning us has been happening for a long time. I mean, this bloke Bragg, the Manhattan District Attorney, has form. He's backed by George Soros. He's soft on crime. He made a campaign promise to go after Donald Trump. Now, I think as you've said, and many are saying, he's now going to have to perform some legal gymnastics to get this thing up, isn't he? He is, and he's not going to be able to legally do it. But I really think when you look at it, a conviction is not really the point. The point is the pain. It's the process. It's the distraction that it is taking Donald Trump's attention away from running for president to deal with these petty little legal issues that they have trumped up, no pun intended. And we know the political leanings of this DA. We know that he made a campaign promise to this. Anybody who has any legal background knows this 
there's no there there to use the Clinton language, um, but they're going after him anyway. They don't care. The mm. pain is in the process, and that's the point. Mm. I mean, to this be is a distraction seven- and to cause Donald Trump harm. Yeah, I mean, this is a seven-year-old charge. I'm just saying to our viewers, which the federal government refused to advance, and which Bragg's office, prior to Bragg coming into office, had previously determined the matter had no merit. Then, of course, you've got this statute of limitations. So this is a state-level misdemeanor, allegedly arguing that a payment made to Stormy Daniels had been filed as a business transaction. How can Bragg elevate that to a federal felony? I just should say to viewers, uh, the misdemeanor is an offence. This is true in Australia as well, which is uh, incurs less than one year in jail. A felony is something that incurs more than that. So this now about Donald Trump has got to be elevated to a federal felony. I would imagine that's not legally possible, Peggy. It's not, but that's never stopped the Democrats before. And to your point, the statute of limitations has run out on this. Even if everything Donald Trump was accused of is true, it would come down to being basically an illegal business filing, a, a business transaction. It's a, a paperwork that was mis, misfiled. And so it should be at the state level a misdemeanor, but yeah, he yeah, has somehow magically created it into a yeah. felony. He does mm. not have federal jurisdiction. He can't do this, See, but he did it anyway. But Peggy, Peggy, this is a bloke who, as district attorney has taken felony convictions of true criminals, downgraded them to misdemeanors on 52% of occasions. So they're releasing criminals back onto the streets of New York and crime now is surging in New York. Nothing this bloke's doing is making New York safer, but he then brings this case against Donald Trump. So, I mean, Trump has reminded supporters regularly, and you've made the point many times, the system is not really going after Trump. This is the excellent point that you've made. It's going after the American people. In other words, if they can do this to a man as powerful and wealthy, as influential as Trump, imagine you're saying what the system could do to anyone without those advantages. That's the worry, isn't it? It is. And you look at especially New Yorkers who are leaving the city in droves. Prices are high. Taxes are high. Crime is rampant. You can't run a business. Your children aren't getting an education in schools. People are afraid for their lives and they're leaving in droves. If you ask the average New Yorker on the street what they would like the DA to be focusing on, it would be on these actual criminals, not reducing their sentences, not returning them to the streets to commit additional crimes, but put these people behind bars in jail where they belong and keep Mm. them there. That's what the New Yorkers want. That's not what their DA Alvin Bragg is doing. And instead, he's spending millions of dollars on security last week to get Donald Trump into the the courthouse. And he succeeded in that, but that's all he's going to succeed in. Just Peggy, finally, then, as I'm speaking to you tonight, what has this done to Trump's standing across America? Well, they try to put him down any way they possibly can, and it only emboldens and strengthens him. We have seen in the last week or so since this indictment came out, his numbers in the polls have gone way up. His lead over a potential run against Ron DeSantis has increased. His fundraising has come in in 
it's historic numbers. And, you know, the left fears Donald Trump so much. They are trying to do yep. this to keep yep. him away from the Oval Absolutely. Office. And all they're doing is emboldening yeah. him and perhaps helping him. Mm. They're strengthening the very person that they mm. fear the most. Absolutely. I mean, basically, and I think Peggy said this, everyone's saying it's making America look like a banana republic. I mean, this is the way authoritarian governments yeah. react. You destroy your opponents. I mean, Nancy Pelosi said, no one's above the law, she said last week, and everyone has the right to a trial to prove their innocence. Peggy, hang on. Isn't one of the key tenets of a fair trial that you are innocent? Someone's got to prove you're guilty. Hey, oh, come on. Listen, Peggy, we'll leave it there. Uh, we'll talk next week. Uh, keep in touch. A brilliant piece that you have written, I have to say. But I'll tell you what, the Democrats are saying Trump shouldn't be given the presumption of innocence. I mean, it's a convenient... Peggy, just before you go, see, this is the other thing, isn't it? This is the distraction away from the way America is failing under Biden. You've made this point. Banks collapsing, schools indoctrinating, not educating, inflation is high, crime's running rampant. Eh? That, those are the issues that American people are worried about, aren't they? Those are the things that the American people want our government to be focused on and talking about. They're ignoring them. And this Trump circus is putting together a great distraction. This is not what the American people want. The left is giddy over this indictment. They shouldn't be. It's bad for America. It should not be celebrated by anybody. Good on you. Great to talk to you. Always articulate, always up to the Thank point. Thank you, Alan. Okay. And happy birthday to you Thank later you. this week, Alan. <laughs> Thank you, Peggy. <laughs> there she is, Peggy Grandy in America. We'll see you next week. Well, that's Peggy Grandy. Let's go to Professor James Allen, who holds the oldest known chair at the University of Queensland. He is the Garrick Professor of Law. He's practiced law at the bar in London. He's enjoyed sabbaticals at the Cornell Law School, at the Dalhousie Law School in Canada, as the Bertha Wilson Visiting Professor of Human Rights, and at the University of San Diego School of Law. Few scholars in Australia have an understanding of the similarity between the American system and ours. So I had Professor James Allen join us. James, thank you for your time. Uh, you make the telling point thank you for having me. about this Trump thing. You're most welcome. That this attorney, District Attorney Bragg, received over a million dollars in campaign donations from George Soros so that he could outspend his opponents and win the election for District Attorney. He's hardly independent. No, and he actually apparently has, has reduced 52% of felony charges to misdemeanors as the crime rate has gone up noticeably in New York. And the, the one misdemeanor he wants to turn into a felony is, the, is former President Trump's uh, charge, which, I mean, across the, legal, across the political spectrum, legal people are saying uh, there's just no there there here. There, there's no way to turn this into a felony. But he's, he's doing it anyway, and he could well get a conviction because he knows that in uh, Manhattan, the, the, the percentage of Democrat voters is about 80 percent. So mm -hmm. the chances of getting a jury to convict President Trump are pretty good. Just come back. So it wouldn't matter bloke, what he charged. Just come back to this black brag, though, the district attorney. And you have written that he proceeded to adopt the core tenets of Black Lives Matter movement. And as you just said, treat violent crimes 
as social justice issues. Now, I made the point earlier, last year he reduced over half of all felony charges to misdemeanours. So violent crime and murder rates, and you just said that in New York City, have massively increased. You cite the case, don't you, of a man with 30... This is the kind of bloke we're dealing with here, Bragg. A man with 36 prior convictions who robbed a drugstore at knife point, but had his grand larceny and theft charge reduced to a misdemeanour, later assaulted a woman on the street. That's the district attorney. Well, when you see the world through the prism of, you know, the social justice mob and identity politics, then you, 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 you just sort of lump people into groups and one group is oppressed and the other group is the oppressor. And so you really don't think that anybody in the oppressed group can do anything that's, that warrants prosecution. And that's sort of the, the, the way they that's the view they bring to the world. So you're, you're seeing it across all the big American U.S. cities, Miami possibly accepted. Uh, the, the crime rate's going up because the kind of people who have run to be district attorneys don't really want to prosecute anyone uh, if they fall into some victim group or other. And yet, and yet you hear this, this bloke resurrecting, uh, going back seven years ago, God knows where the statute of limitations finished, but as you've said, and I made the point before with Peggy, the Department of Justice and the federal government five years ago looked at the very same facts and refused to prosecute. I mean, you make the very serious point, and I quote you, Professor James Allen said, in no democracy do things work out well when the justice system is politicised and political opponents are targeted and charged. To say it is third world stuff is to be unkind to the third world. James. Well, it's been 240 years in the US and they've never uh, used the criminal justice system against uh, a political opponent. I mean, they, they could have done it to Hillary Clinton, who used her her emails, her personal email servers. Uh, they could have done it to Bill Clinton, who was paying off women who were accusing him of rape, which is not what, what is happening with Donald Trump. Uh, he just didn't want anyone to know that he'd had a sexual relationship with this porn star. Uh, the statute of limitations has run out for the misdemeanor, and it only becomes a felony if the first felony can cite a second felony. So the, it's a bookkeeping offense related to campaign finance laws. It's not clear it's an offense at all because he used his own money. So it's not clear how it's a campaign finance offense. But if it is, it's a misdemeanor and the statute of limitations has run out on that. Mm. So to raise it to a felony, you have to link the bookkeeping offense to some other felony. And he never does that. No. He never, he just leaves that hanging. And so if you look at someone like Jonathan Turley, who's a Democrat, or uh, Dershowitz. These are Democrats. They're lifelong Democrat voters. They say these are palpably laughable criminal charges. Now, it's true that Donald Trump makes people, a lot of people in the U.S. and here just lose their minds. They lose all sort of sane ability to pass judgment. And so there's a lot of them. They, they don't really care if it's just a made-up charge as long as you convict Trump. Mm. And so it's not at all clear what's going to happen as this moves forward. I think it sort of helps Trump, yeah. turns him into a martyr. Just come back to the point that you just made there about left-wing academics. Now, you've cited this left-wing, but you called him brutally honest, US law professor, Professor Jonathan Turley saying, and I quote, this case would be easily dismissed outside a jurisdiction like New York, where Bragg can count on highly motivated judges and jurors. And uh, James has just made the point that the number who vote Republican in the New York are minuscule. But Turley further says, although it may not be politically popular, 
This is a left winger. The case is legally pathetic. The district attorney is struggling to twist state laws to effectively prosecute a federal case long ago rejected by the Justice Department against Trump over his payment of hush money to a former stripper, Stormy Daniels. Uh, James, I've quoted earlier tonight Victor Davis Hanson, who says that serious charges, and you've made this point, but they need to be made again, could have been levelled separately against Hillary and Bill Clinton, but they weren't. Didn't Bill Clinton hand over hush money to women? Well, he did. And, you know, you could and, and it's pretty patently clear that charges could be brought against Biden. And what happens is once you go down this road, yes. the pressure on Republicans to prosecute Democrats will be enormous. And you'll get into this sort of third world tit for tat where you use the criminal justice system against your political opponents. Now, look, the Democrats have been out to get Trump. They loathe the man. The whole Russia collusion thing, nothing came of it because there was nothing there. Uh, then they had the documents that Trump had taken home. He can declassify documents as a former president just by standing up and saying, I declassify them. Whereas President Biden was vice president when he took the documents and vice presidents can't do that. So, I mean, they, they couldn't then go after Trump on the documents. They thought they would get him on January 6th, but it turns out, you know, there was almost nothing there. So now they're reduced to trying to get him for a bookkeeping offense related to campaign finance laws, where it's not even clear there's any offense at all because he used his own money. Mm. He didn't use campaign money to pay off Stormy Daniels. All American politicians are paying people off all the time. And as you say, uh, Bill Clinton was paying him off for very serious allegations. Mm. Trump just uh, uh, wanted to shut up a woman he'd slept with who was a porn star. Uh, so again, if that's your level so, of uh, so your, anger, I there's mean, all sorts right. of American politicians. I mean, you're right. We're electing politicians, not pastors, aren't we? But as a professor well, of law, you're saying that this is flat out politics and very dangerous politics that your words, once you let Pandora open this box, it's no easy task to shut it ever again. So just repeat that point that you've made, that if the Democrats do this and throw all Democrat norms out the window, then the only effective response is to do likewise back because the only winning strategy involves reciprocity. The other side gives it back with plenty of interest. Yeah, well, here's another example. What, whatever you think of the filibuster, uh, the Democrats got rid of it when it came to appointing judges, except for Supreme Court judges. So when the Republicans came in, they got rid of it for Supreme Court judges. I mean, you, you can't expect one side of politics to just sit there and play by Marcus of Queensbury rules when the other side is being, you know, throwing these norms out the window. My prediction is there'll be a lot of pressure on Republican district attorneys to start indicting Democrats. And, you know, if you don't think that's going to happen now, I, I admit that conservative politicians tend to have the backbone of a, an amoeba and, you know, they tend not to have any fight in them at all. But in the U.S., there are a few that have a bit of fight and this is not going to be this is not going to end happily. Happily. Well, just talk about ending then. OK, tell us, where is this going to finish up for Donald Trump? Hard to say. Uh, his, his popularity has gone up amongst Republican voters. So, so even before these charges, Trump was leading amongst Republican. So here's my take. I think that it, in a general election, if Trump died tomorrow, DeSantis would do better against the no Democrat nominee. DeSantis would do better. But DeSantis has to win the nomination against Trump, and that's not easy to do. Donald Trump has 
almost 50% of the base that would vote for him, they'd walk over glass for him. And so in order to beat Trump, the only person with even a remote chance is DeSantis. And DeSantis, he can't afford other people to go into the nomination fight because everybody who goes in is taking votes away from DeSantis. The Trump base is not leaving. And so it's very difficult to beat Trump for the nomination. Uh, and again, I think DeSantis could conceivably do it because how, of how well he handled the pandemic. But I don't think he will, because I just think it's so hard to beat Trump. And you can't Absolutely. really attack yeah, that Trump. Rusted on. That rusted on. That yeah, rusted you, on. You can't really attack Trump. That's that, the problem. That's rusted on. Hey, look, great to talk to you. Great analysis. Fantastic stuff. And we'll see where it heads. I don't think they're going to knock Donald Trump out of the ring this time. They couldn't knock, it, knock him out of the ring before. No, I don't think so. Either. I don't think they'll knock him out now. Good to talk to you, James. There he is. Interesting. Can I just ask how, you, how you're going, Alan? Yeah, yeah. Can I just go? Sorry? How's the health? Uh, How's the health? I had a week off last week, had a few little medical things, solved it all out. I've got good doctors. I'm up and running. I'm like Donald Trump. I'm in the ring and I'm punching. Good. Good. <laughs> well, hang in there. Thank you, James. There he is, Professor James yep. Allen. He's the Garrick Professor of Law at Queensland University. Let me be blunt with, oh, you say he's always blunt. No, I'm not. Let me be blunt with the Liberal Party in the wilderness across Australia. It cannot afford a leader in Victoria like this unknown John Pesuto, a mad lefty heading the party of the state, which was once described as the jewel of the Liberal crown. Pesuto represents the simple problem of the Liberal Party. If you try to imitate the other side, the voter will choose the other side. On Saturday, March 18, there was a peaceful women's rally on the steps of the Victorian Parliament. It was a simple but important cause in support of retaining and defending women's rights in the face of relentless efforts by a minority of transgender activists to effectively obliterate women's rights and hand them over to trans women. Now, I don't know anyone who has a problem with trans women, biological men who say they are women. The problem is when such people seek to occupy women's change rooms, play women's sport and inhabit spaces reserved for the safety of women. Now that surely is pretty basic stuff. One of the organisers of the rally was the Liberal member of the Victorian Upper House, Moira Deeming. She's a former teacher. In her maiden speech to the Victorian Parliament, she called for, quote, an open inquiry into gender affirmation practices, unquote, involving minors. She described hormonal and surgical interventions as, quote, medically unjustifiable, irreversible, and devastatingly harmful. And she added, and I quote, yet ideologues continue to vilify and incite hatred towards anyone who sounds the alarm, unquote. Moira Deeming was elected on a platform where she insisted on reclaiming the sex-based rights of women and girls. She talked about her trouble as a high school teacher and mother to understand the implications of gender ideology in the curriculum. She was very concerned that teachers were being told in an Andrews-led system in Victoria that they could, that's teachers, could enable the social transition of students to the opposite sex for students as young as 12, without parental knowledge or approval, if the child were deemed to be, quote, a mature minor. 
Moira Deeming is sensibly drawing attention to international concerns that gender ideology in schools is creating a pipeline to gender clinic medicalisation. She stood for Parliament because she said, quote, I didn't want to be involved in telling a child that medicalised gender change was good. She said, I didn't want to be involved in confusing a child. I didn't want to be involved, she said, in lying to parents. I felt I was being used by the government to push an ideology behind parents' backs, which was not anywhere near close to being harmless." Unquote. Moira Deeming. Well, back to the rally on March 18. A few ugly thugs saw an opportunity to hijack the event. Typically in Victoria, there was some odd policing. The Victorian police held back the trans activists who arrived to disrupt the rally. But there were 15 to 20 young men, mostly masked, throwing Nazi salutes, and they just seemed to have entry to the rally facilitated. It caused the rally to disperse early. Back then to this fool, Liberal leader, Pesuto, who abandoned any sense of Liberal principles and followed the Andrews political line, which sought to argue that Moira Deeming was part of a rally supported by Nazis. Typical Andrews stuff. So out came Pesuto, not a leader's bootlace. And quite frankly, talking about boots, he should be booted out of the leadership. Said Pesuto, quote, I will never ever accept any member of the Parliamentary Liberal Party under my leadership ever associating with anybody who shares a platform with people who peddle hate, division and attack people for who they are. You dope. Shared a platform, you're a fool, Pesuto. Moira Deeming was nowhere near sharing anything with these Nazi interlopers. Pesuto's response was straight out of the Andrews playbook, except this was Pesuto, the supposed Liberal leader. Moira Deeming had nothing to do with the Nazis, and nor was Moira Deeming condemning transgenderism. The rally was about protecting safe spaces for biological women. But this non-liberal, non-leader, Pesuto, tried to expel Moira Deeming from the Liberal Party. He failed. And now she's suspended from the party for nine months, a time, I might add, of special significance to women. If the Liberal Party thought it didn't have a problem with women before, it certainly has one now. But the biggest problem is how someone like this fellow Pesuto could ever become leader of a modern Liberal Party. Give the job to Moira Deeming. She's arguing common sense. Australia currently has in its midst a very distinguished guest and famous broadcaster, Andrew Neil. He enjoys a remarkable reputation. He's currently chairman of Press Holdings, whose titles include that splendid magazine. And I'm not saying that because he's here, The Spectator. Now, I'm telling mums and dads out there, you subscribe, but give it to your children too, because it's the opportunity to learn and read without being dominated by wokeism. So it's spectator.com.au forward slash join. There it is. It's on your, it'll be on your screens. Spectator.com.au. There it is. Forward slash join. Andrew Neil has his own television show in Britain, but he was previously editor of the Sunday Times from 1983 to 1994. As you'll soon hear, he is a Scotsman and proud of it. He was the founding chairman in Britain in 1998 of a pioneering initiative called Sky TV, part of the 
Murdoch News Corporation. He worked for the BBC for 25 years and was a graduate of Glasgow University with a master's degree in, and honours in political economy and political science. And he was once a sports correspondent, though I'm not sure he'd admit to that. Now, a very good writer on cricket and on rugby. He's in Australia and he joins me. Andrew, thank you for your time. Um, what kind of world, here we go, what kind of world do you think we are inhabiting today? I think we're in a pretty dangerous role. By the way, it's great to be back. Uh, I always love coming to Australia. It's a great country. Lovely to have you here. And uh, I'm always so well received by people like yourself. And I don't take that for granted. Uh, I think it's a bit of a dangerous world at the moment. I think the, the autocrats are on the march. Uh, they've invaded Ukraine. They're threatening Taiwan. Uh, democracies are weaker than they should be. Uh, they're not standing up to the autocrats in the way they should be. They're not united enough in the way they should be. So I think in some ways we need to get our act together. Now it's beginning to happen. The AUKUS deal between Britain, Australia, the United States, that's part of getting our act together. But that's just the beginning. There's a lot more we'll need to do uh, if democracy is to survive this century. I agree with you, Andrew. In the last week, we have seen the death of Nigel Lawson, Lord Lawson, which was covered superbly in the spectator, the most consequential chancellor, I think we could say, in modern British history. Governments of the Western world, I think, have a lot to learn from Nigel Lawson, but I wonder, are they prepared to learn, do you think? I mean, how accurate was he when he identified the real problem? He called it the curse of consensus. I mean, witness coronavirus and the damage consensus did to the economies of the West while China kept laughing. Well, when Nigel Lawson was a chancellor, he was Margaret Thatcher's chancellor, they broke the consensus. It was a consensus that had dominated not just British, but Western politics yes. since the end of the Second World War. And then we were now in the, we were then, by then in the 1980s. So it had been around for quite a long time. Ronald Reagan did something the same uh, in the United States as well. And I think if you're going to do that, you, you used the word prepare earlier. I think you need to prepare the ground. I think it, you don't just do it overnight. You know, there were, I was with The Economist in the 1970s, very different magazine, I'm happy to say, in the 70s than it is now. Uh -huh. And it prepared a lot of the groundwork for lower taxes, privatization, competition in public services, trust busting, uh, and all the rest of it. And so there was an argument to be had as Britain was suffering and didn't decline under a collectivist consensus. There were new ideas coming through, but we didn't just spring them on the public. They were, as I say, they were fostered and prepared and allowed to flourish over time. Mm. And in these days, I think conservatives or those on the, the right, the center right, they kind of knew what they were doing. They knew that they wanted a smaller state. They wanted lower taxes. They wanted less government regulation. Mm. They wanted strong defense, because, mm. of course, we were still yes. at the height of the Cold War. I find today a lot of conservatives don't really know what no. they want, which no. is why they get in a mess. Now, we've vacated the field. I'm speaking to Andrew Neil, a very distinguished British broadcaster. Right now, your country, America, us, we have unconscionable levels of debt. Nigel Lawson, and you've just alluded to this, said you can't cut tax unless you cut spending. How do Western economies in Britain, in Australia, in America, grow the pie? I mean, Lawson was spot on, but we, as I said, seem to have vacated that field. Well, I think conservatives have now not just vacated that field, but they've actually moved to another field. Yes. Because yes. we are now in an age of what I would call big government conservatism. Uh, 
uh, for example, Donald Trump was a big government yes. conservative. He yes. loved uh, governments doing things. Boris Johnson was not this kind of mad right winger of Labour Party uh, mythology. He was a big government conservative. He didn't see an infrastructure program. He didn't want to finance. I mean, at one stage, he was even talking about building a bridge from Britain to Ireland over the Irish Sea. When we told him that wasn't going to work, he said, well, what about a tunnel? You know? uh, and of course, the pandemic created big government. Yes. And war creates big government. And lo and behold, we've just had a pandemic and we're in a war. And so even Rishi Sunak, who is more of a limited government kind of guy, he's in a big government time. And if you look at the, what's happening to the right, they are big government people. And of course, one of the things that's inevitable, as you will know, if you have big government, one thing follows is night follows day, and that's big taxes. Mm. In the end, you can't just borrow, though yes. all governments have, but there comes a time Quite. when you run out of borrowing limit, you run out of debt, yes. and you need to put up taxes. And even the Conservative government in Britain has been doing that. But what about the old principle that has been forgotten, that if you did cut taxes, you're building incentives to work harder, to invest more, and thereby, in the end, you do produce yeah. greater tax revenue for government. I mean, Nigel Lawson, what, took the tax rate down from 60p to 40-something. I mean, he basically said that a bloated state, your point, makes for a weaker economy and a weaker society. But we don't have one Western leader who's arguing that position, do we? No, you don't. Not one. Not one anywhere. And indeed, a lot of the what I would call the new right, or the more hard right, like the current prime minister of Italy or Marine Le Pen in France, or as I alluded, Mr. Trump in the United States, they believe in the big state and they believe in high taxes. Mm. Uh, they, I think one of the problems is, is this. It's counterintuitive to argue that if you cut taxes, you'll get more revenue. So you need to take the time to prepare the ground yes. to let people understand. And you also need to know it isn't actually true of all taxes. You cut the basic rate of income tax, the standard rate, you will lose revenue. What mm. Nigel Lawson knew was that at the margin, if people were facing 60% marginal rates of tax and you cut it to 40, they would work harder they would come back to Britain and be tax resident in Britain again. And overall, the government would end up with more revenue. Yeah, see, now, that's a, quite a sophisticated argument, and you is. need time to explain it. And you've got to prosecute that argument. See, mm -hmm. I, I think we're at the point where we're taxing the wrong things. I mean, we're taxing income and profit when, in fact, we ought to be taxing expenditure. I mean, you tax income, you reduce people's capacity to provide for themselves. Tax profit, you reduce the corporation's ability to employ people, because you can only employ people out of profit unless you print money. But if you tax expenditure, then you're on, you, you've got an option. You don't have to drive the Mercedes his Ben's car. You can drive something else. Your wife doesn't have to wear jewellery. Go without jewellery. You see, in Britain, though, you've got an advantage over us, but are you taking advantage of it? You've got a five-year election cycle. That should enable significant tax reform to articulate it and to prosecute it and to then see the benefits of it being implemented. Why isn't that happening? It should, and I, and I have to say five years. In practice, it usually turns out to be four years. Yeah. But whether it's four or five is a lot better than three. I mean, it's not, as a guest in your country, it's not for me to criticize <laughs> this You're place. You're 100% correct. But, but three years is far too short. I mean, you 
you barely get your feet under the table. But even if you've got a bit more time, here's the problem. You've got more time to do things provided you don't start ripping yourself apart. You don't start enjoying fighting each other rather than fighting yes, the enemy. Yes. And so often I look, as I think it's been happening in Australia, yes. you know better than me. Yes. I see it with the Republicans in America. I see it with the Conservatives that knocking lumps out of each other. And they seem to enjoy knocking lumps out of each other. Now that used to be what the, the left enjoyed. That's who mm. the left used to enjoy, yes. knocking lumps out of each other. Now it's the right that enjoys doing it. And if you do that, even four or five years isn't enough to make the necessary mm. changes. You made, you made reference earlier to Boris Johnson. It's a mystery to many. How did Boris Johnson, an editor of The Spectator for six years, argue vehemently conservative values yet become the opposite in government. Big spending, high tax. Why are these people captured by the left when they get there? They're not just captured by the left, though that's an element of it. They're captured, I would say, by a metropolitan groupthink. Mm. And the kind of people they meet tend to believe in everything you've just outlined. The, the schools their kids go to with others of the metropolitan elite all think that as well. The dinner parties they go to, that is the consensus. And I think they rather like being liked. Yes. And, they, and they don't yes. like their kids being attacked because yes. their father's an evil you know, yes. climate denier or whatever it is happens yes. to be the evil of the day. And I think, and Boris, uh, Boris at the Grey, I mean, he used to work for me. I know yes. Boris. I mean, I, I'm very fond of Boris in many ways. He's a brilliant person. The one thing you've been sure is he'll always let you down. Uh, yes. And, uh, and he, he often had this tendency to have the view of the last person he spoke to. Uh, because he's ideologically promiscuous. Yeah. He's uh, promiscuous in other ways too, but yeah. we probably shouldn't go there. Yeah. But he's ideologically promiscuous too. And without that kind of hard, settled view on things, you don't want to be ideological, you don't want to be rigid. But like Margaret Thatcher, like uh, Ronald Reagan, you do need a kind of set of core beliefs yes. by which you yes. then judge. Yes. And of course, you have to be tactical as well as strategic. People forget that although Margaret, Margaret Thatcher had that great seminal watershed victory over the coal miners, mm. two years before she had retreated and mm. allowed the coal miners to win because she didn't think she was ready. Mm. So you need to be agile, but mm. you do need to have a set of core beliefs, and Boris really yes. didn't have that set See, of beliefs. people forget, and the other thing is that they're hopeless with their history. I mean, there was Nigel Lawson reducing the top rate of income tax from 60p to 40p, and when he did that in the 1988 budget, there was uproar. I mean, mm -hmm. the Labor Chancellor, Dennis Healy, I should say to our viewers, Dennis Winston Healy, because the middle name honoured Winston Churchill, but he was a Balliol College Oxford man, a splendid degree, mm -hmm. but joined the Communist Party when he was Oxford University, so a double first at Oxford doesn't really tend to guarantee common sense. But, uh, Andrew, didn't Dennis Healy say that he would tax the rich, quote, until the pips squeak? Yes. Only to find, only to find that a top personal tax rate, what, of 83 cents in the mm. dollar, did no such thing. Somehow or other, these people don't seem to grasp the reality of how you manufacture economic growth. 
the rich paid less tax when the top rate was 83% than they did when it was 40%. Mm. Uh, and indeed, it was 98% for what they called unearned income. In other words, dividend income or interest income on your bank account, 98%. It's why the Rolling Stones left Britain. Uh, the radical rock band didn't like 98% or 83 yeah. And uh, the Beatles wrote a famous song about the tax man. Yes. It was so, taking all their, their money. So but but here's, the pro here's the problem, as I see it. There is a limit to which you can tax the better off. Of course, yeah. it's only right that in a modern society, those can afford it should pay more tax yeah. than those that can't. Yeah. I think anybody would want to argue with that. But there's a limit to which if you go beyond, they just leave. There okay. is nobody more mobile than a well-educated English-speaking professional. They Good can idea. go anywhere. Yeah. And even in France, where they increased taxes yes. in the 1990s, listen to this. 60,000 millionaires left the country. <clears throat> 60,000. That's your tax base walking yes. across the border. That's it. To Switzerland or Italy. Yes. Or wherever. <clears throat> so you are constrained by how far you can go and well, you're constrained by how then. much you can borrow too. Uh, uh, you uh, need growth. Let me tell you, I could talk to you all night. I want to take that point up though because you're talking about tax exiles. You're dead right. They decide, well, we'll leave. We don't have to stay. Now, this is where we are, Andrew, on energy policy in, in this country. I mean, this blind pursuit of <laughs> renewable energy, demonise fossil fuels, put energy costs through the roof. Manufacturers are saying, well, I'm sorry, there's other places I can put my money and we're exporting jobs, exporting growth, exporting wealth. When do we get back to the principle argued by JFK? Lower tax rates lead to higher tax yields. Well, I think getting the answer to this right, and particularly to the net zero policy, getting the alternative of that and the answer right is probably a, a necessary, not necessarily a sufficient, but a necessary first step to the sensible right finding itself in a new position. Because we're living in a world now where metropolitan elites virtue signal with their support for net zero, but the consequences is that ordinary people, as my old mm -hmm. mentor, the economist used to call them, without any kind of, of, of patronizing, plain folk, the backbone of the country, they're paying eye-watering fuel bills now. And it's really hurting them. And whereas, as you said earlier, you don't have to buy a new Mercedes or a new fridge or whatever, you can put that off. You have to heat the house and put the aircon on in the summer. And we are lumbering ordinary people long before the Ukraine war pushed energy prices up. They're now coming back down a bit from there anyway. In pursuit of policies that suit the metropolitan elite, we are penalizing plain folk. And I would suggest to the right in Australia, in Britain, in the United States, that coming up with policies that take account of that mm. and don't penalize the backbone of the country might the, be the beginning of getting to policies that would be popular in the 2020s. Absolutely. Brilliant. Lenison, we could talk all day, but <laughs> I think I should end this from your own magazine, The Spectator, which reminded us recently of Lord Lawson's speech in the House of Lords in 2012, when he said, quote, in my rather long political experience, when all three political parties are agreed on a policy, it's nearly always mistaken. There is a very clear reason, he said, 
why that should be. The existence of all party consensus, he said, ensures that the policy in question is never properly debated or scrutinised. He said, if the evidence shows that the policy is mistaken, it should be abandoned. It's as simple as that. And of course, he was entirely right. And it's even worse when 95% of the media is part of that consensus. Yes, yes. And on the net growth issue, you've now got a media which are basically just cheerleaders yep. for the consensus. And mm. sometimes I wonder why newspapers and broadcasters pay the environmental correspondent salary. Why don't they just send the bill to Greenpeace? <laughs> That's it. Well, the good news is your magazine, The Spectator, this program and your program in Britain are not part of that cohort. So it's wonderful to talk to you. Great to be back. <laughs> there Thank he is. Andrew Neal, Chairman you. of Press Holdings, one of whose titles is The Spectator. And to subscribe, fabulous read, go to spectator.com.au forward slash join. Spectator.com.au forward slash join. That was Andrew Neal. Well, before we go, Indonesia. A couple of points need to be made about our very important neighbour. Last financial year, our total two-way trade in goods and services with Indonesia was worth $18.35 They love our wheat, beef, petroleum, aluminium and cotton. We need to remember that Indonesia is one of the fastest growing economies in the world, with estimates saying it'll be the world's fifth largest economy in seven years. Our history with Indonesia is complex, but unparalleled. Indonesia's Makassar people have been interacting with Indigenous Australians for over 300 years, decades before James Cook set foot on the East Coast. In 1949, we fought Indonesia during the Indonesia-Malaysia conflict. 50 years later, we fought Indonesia during the East Timor crisis. In 2013, the Indonesians reacted badly and rightly after it was revealed that Australia was spying on their president, his wife, and several high-ranking officials. However, both countries have now moved on and we enjoy a shared vision of cooperation and collaboration. For example, we worked together to stop the boats during the Abbott era. We have worked together to stop human rights abuses in Afghanistan, a significant development given that Indonesia is the world's largest Muslim country. In fact, we've now become so close that Indonesia has considered sending troops to Australia so they can be trained by our experts as part of strengthening defence ties. However, in fewer than 10 months, the Indonesian people will go to the polls to elect their next president, who will no doubt, of course, set the course of that nation and its interactions with Australia for decades to come. Well, now a curved ball has been bowled into the contest. A few weeks ago, Indonesia was stripped of hosting rights for this year's under-20 FIFA Soccer World Cup after calls in Indonesia to ban Israel from the competition. And those calls gathered steam in the Muslim-majority nation due to its support for the Palestinian cause. As a result, the country's not only lost an estimated $370 million in economic activity, but also the decision has deprived Indonesian soccer fans of a chance to see their country host its first FIFA tournament. But more importantly, it's tarnished the electability of the country's presidential frontrunner, Central Java Governor Gunjar Pranowo. And it's done nothing to help the Palestinian people. It's essentially 
an Indonesian exercise in virtue signaling, but FIFA reacted by stripping Indonesia of soccer hosting rights. Now, what's this mean for Australia? Well, new polling shows that support for Israel's participation was as high as 59% before FIFA's decision, and likely higher now because people are angry with the events that led to the cancellation. As a result, polling shows that support for Ganjar Pranowo, the successor to the current Indonesian president, Joko Widodo, or the likely successor, his support has collapsed. Voters have now moved to the defence minister, Prabowo Subianto, who panders to radical Muslims, and the former Jakarta governor, Anies Baswedan, who's a strong supporter of Australia. In fact, Baswedan says forging closer economic and military ties with Australia is one of his key priorities. Baswedan has even said Australia and Indonesia, quote, need each other as we are the closest neighbours, unquote. He has declared that, quote, balance in terms of stability in the region, unquote, including in the South China Sea, quote, is an issue we have to tackle together, unquote. So my point in all of this, Australia has a real opportunity here. The tide is turning towards a pro-Australia Indonesian presidential candidate, the Jakarta governor, Anies Baswedan. Anthony Albanese would be mad not to take advantage of the situation and make our closest and most important neighbour a strong, reliable ally as Beijing continues to militarise our region. That's it from me for tonight. <laughs> Thank you for being with us. Don't forget you can listen to tonight's program at 6am tomorrow on your podcast app. Just search Alan Jones. And don't forget you can email me, alanjones at adh.tv. I'll see you tomorrow night. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.